welcome to a new episode of The Relentless Project. This is our first interview. Her name is Miranda, and she's 29 years old, an amazing human being, an amazing mom to beautiful to two beautiful boys, and she'll also be talking about her harrowing childhood story of surviving after recurrent child sexual abuse from a step-sibling and growing up in an unstable single-parent home with a mom that struggled with addiction. This is the first time that she's ever shared her story, and I have the utmost respect for the amount of bravery that she had when she decided to share this with me and ultimately with you. This was recorded when I moved into the East Coast maybe a few months ago. Um, I didn't have anything set up, and so the original audio from my old headset is kind of difficult to hear, so I decided to add this narration to help guide you through our interview. I do want to mention that this was a little difficult for me to, to do, um, especially since there was plenty of moments that I could relate to in my own experiences. And so if this is true for you, definitely take this at your own pace. This will always be here for you. If you don't already know this, I always make detailed timestamps for every episode on my website at www.relentlesspodcast.com. And without further ado, here's Miranda. Um, I'm 29 years old. I was born and raised in Kentucky, lived here my whole life. I now have two kids. They are toddlers. I grew up in, I, I've had a rough, I've had a rough life. I've definitely been through some stuff that normal kids or people in general shouldn't have went through. Mm-hmm. Um, for a long time, I let it affect me and my choices. And after having kids is when I realized I am my person. I am my own person. Nobody controls me anymore. And I don't feel, I don't feel victimized anymore. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I can overcome it and see the light on the other side, I think other people can too. And for a long time, for a long time, I have never opened up about my story. This is the first time ever. Miranda is such a brave soul for coming forward with her story in such a public forum. And I wanted to know more about how her child sexual abuse affected her growing up. And this is what she said. Um, I come from a family that, I don't know the right word for it, that kind of stuff. Um, you just don't mention, you don't talk about it. You act like it's never happened. That's uh, frowned upon. Makes you look bad in the eyes of society. So growing up, I was, after it happened, I was never given the opportunity to cope with it in a healthy way. And it led it to where I... I sought the attention and affection from people that weren't good at all and not in a very healthy way because I felt I just wanted that. I wanted what was taken from me. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted someone to love me and tell me that it's okay, that I'm not flawed, that I'm not 
a mistake and that it wasn't my fault. Because my family, my family was never there for me. They, they were never there to help me. And I get, I got blamed. It was my fault. People who blame victims of sexual assault or rape for their own abuse don't understand the extreme pressure to hide their abuse. If you are a supporter for a victim or a survivor, please understand that it's incredibly difficult for survivors to come out with their story. Survivors of sexual assault already have a crazy amount of shame that comes with being powerless or vulnerable at the time of violation. And being accused of our own abuse has terrible effects on our mental health, making it way harder to heal from the multitude of negative effects that come with being sexually assaulted or raped. After Miranda shared this, she shared a little bit more about how she coped with abuse growing up. When I was 13, no, I take that back, I was 14. I was 14. And I I guess I guess at that time is when the whole internet dating really truly started I guess it makes me feel so old I'm trying to think when when was I 14 this is 2020 like 15 years ago it's like 2005 um and I met this guy online he was 19 years old now now in the state of Kentucky that's legal okay five years is legal um and it was literally just for a sexual relationship I'm 14 years old. I shouldn't be thinking about that stuff. But he said he loved me and wanted to give me the world. And I hadn't had anybody that, I mean, I had nobody. So I was like, okay. And it's just that type of relationship or companionship is what I went for after that experience. That's what I sought after was people or men who were older and didn't really truly cherish me or value me. They just wanted something from me. And I thought at the time it was love, you know? I mean, I never knew what love really was. I, didn't, I, I grew up without a dad, so I don't, I don't even know who my dad is either. So that kind of played into it, I guess, a lot. I, uh, I started drinking when I, was, when I was a teenager, probably when I was about 11. My, uh, my grandparents used to keep um, some whiskey in the house for, like, hot toddies and stuff. I, that's, I guess that's a Southern thing. Um, and I used, when I, cause I lived, I, I bounced back and forth between who I lived with and my family. And when I was there or I was at my uncle's, he was an, he was an alcoholic. They always had beer in the house. I would sneak and drink it. And my mom was, a, my mom was a full blown alcoholic. So when I would start feeling real down or upset about it, about everything at 11 years old, here I am sneaking in the pantry, <laughs> getting drunk. Like you just don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I moved away from home at 18 for college is when I, uh, I started getting into drugs to cope with it, with the loneliness and the, the part of me I felt was void. Did you have anyone to talk with Miranda? No. Um, my best friend, I, I mean, I did tell my best friend, but which we've been best friends since um, we became best friends after it happened when I moved back home. But uh, she never just like would ask me. She would just like let me talk about stuff if I had to. But I knew she didn't fully understand or anything because she never had to go through it. 
Mm-hmm. So I never fully, truly opened up. When did you start opening up about your story? I mean, not not to other people, but when did you start looking into your own story and and taking um, account of what had happened? When I was living in, I was living in Lexington, Kentucky, and this was back in 2012. And I had come across, I had come across on, it was on Facebook at that time. They used to um, have this thing where it would be like suggestion for friends through friends you were friends with. Well, um, a girl I graduated with, she was originally from down there. Um, a mutual friend popped, or not mutual, but a suggested fr- a suggested friend popped up, and it was uh, it was the it was the guy who'd done it, who who had raped me, and it was that moment that I started, I guess, to analyze it in my head. Um, mm-hmm. it it was slow at first. I mean, it's been it's been kind of slow over the years, but the last year or so. It's just, I don't know, I just felt like it was something I needed to do the last year or so, really, truly put it out there and look into it. Because I get part parts of it, I don't fully remember, and I don't know if it's just my subconscious. Oh, absolutely, that can definitely happen. Mm-hmm. Um, or what, and I, I've honestly thought about reaching out to him, but I kind of don't at the same time. Because I feel like he owes me that. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, not only did he take my, my childhood, my innocence away from me, but, I mean, he, he destroyed everything. And I, I he destroyed it my whole life. And then when I found out he had kids, I, I, just, I, I felt guilty since that day. Because they were my age. They're my age when I was that age, you know? Yeah. I genuinely, I don't want to interrupt you, but... I hope you truly know that it absolutely isn't your fault that he has children. Not at all. It's a terrible thing that he does, but it's not your fault by any means. If you're a survivor of child sexual abuse who was told that your abuse was your fault, I want to remind you that it's not your fault. You were young and didn't understand yourself in the same way that you do today. A lot of the times, whether or not we were accused of fault, we as survivors will even blame ourselves for our own abuse. Maybe we'll say things like, I let it happen, or blame ourselves for not coming forward with our own story. As horrible as it is that we as survivors have a tendency to blame ourselves about anything regarding the abuse, it's pretty common. So if you need to hear this, I want to let you know again that it was not your fault. No matter what you did, no matter what you did it for, no matter what you couldn't do at the time, it wasn't your fault. Sometimes we'll try to take the blame for any aspect of our abuse because it's our subconscious way of protecting us from feeling vulnerable. But we were vulnerable. And again, it was not your fault just like What had happened to Miranda was most definitely not her fault. And the fact that her perpetrator later on in life had kids, that was definitely, definitely not her fault. And so after she shared this with me, she shared a little bit more about what it was like growing up after the abuse. This is what she said. How old were you when it? I was, I was eight when it started. 
And when you say started, did it happen over a a period of time? Yes. It happened from the first, the first, um, I wouldn't really say, I wouldn't really call it actual rape, but the first sexual encounter I had with him, um, my mom had started seeing his dad and my mom was a full-blown alcoholic at this time and she had took me around her boyfriends or flings or whatever you want to call it all the time and I don't mean just like one it was a different person every few weeks every few months never more than three years and I me and my mom had lived with my aunt at this time but my mom was never there like She'd gone all the weekends. If my aunt was off, she was gone. My aunt practically raised me at this point. And one day my mom comes in and says, Miranda, I want you to meet this guy. I guess she'd been seeing him for like a year. Which I found really weird that I had never met this guy at that point. And she took me to Frankfurt, where he lived at, for the weekend. And he had a... 13 year old son well that night I was sleeping in the living room but I wasn't really asleep because I had a hard time I guess falling asleep at new places Mm -hmm. so I was just watching Tarzan the Disney movie on repeat well he he comes in the living room and I pretend to be asleep because I'm like scared anyways I'm in a new place I don't know these people And he lays down beside me and I just continue to pretend like I'm asleep because which, okay, side note, my mom and me have never had a good relationship. Even when I was super young, we never had that motherly daughterly bond. She, she could go from being super great and super nice to the most scariest person you've ever seen in your life. In, in an instant. So I didn't want to wake her up because I was scared. Mm-hmm. Not only of him, of this place, but my mom too. And he started touching me, which I was laying on my stomach. So he like put it, he put his hand on my back at first and then put it into my pants and started fondling me. I guess it's the word I should use. And I just laid there and silently cried and let it happen because I was scared. That must have been terrifying, especially since you didn't know who to go to uh, during that time. Truly, it was. Not only that, but I'm eight years old. I don't really know what's truly, honestly happening. No. Absolutely. And so that was the first time? That was the first time. And it was just with his fingers. You know, he didn't actually, um, I guess it would be rape, but it wasn't like, full-blown I don't really know what the words would be to describe it you know like I violated you Um, he did he absolutely did there is no measure of that absolutely not He, he harmed you in the worst way possible and when did it happen again um we left that Sunday to go back home where I'm from and about a week later, my mom tells everybody and me that uh, 
we're moving there because her and this guy are going to get married. And this was probably, we were going to move there at the end of May because that's when I got out of school because I was in, I was in the third grade. And I threw a fit. Not only that, but I I didn't want to leave my family, you know, like my grandfather was alive then and he was, he was everything to me. Like he, he was the only person, one of the only people looking back now that I knew loved me and cared about me, you know, and he's the only one that would save me when my mom had, I call it an episode when she goes crazy. I didn't want to go. But I couldn't tell them why. Because I have never been able to open up to, especially my mom like that, at all. So, I didn't have a choice. I had had to go. And it was the first time in my life that my mom was actually, in my eyes, being a mom. She, you know, she stopped going out. She was happy all the time. She wasn't constantly telling me that I ruined her life and I was a mistake even before that happened. She actually wanted something to do with me. So me being eight years old, I'm conflicted. I'm scared to death, but yet it's my chance to have my mom, mm-hmm. you know? you need Everybody needs their mom. So I went and... The first couple of nights that we were there, because they got a new house or whatever, and uh, they wanted to get a, they wanted to get a different place because they lived in an apartment down there, and they called him WD, which was basically short for like because he was named after his dad, and uh, obviously we had to have separate rooms. Well, the house that they got was kind of pointless because when you went upstairs. Our rooms were separated, but not really. Like, a wall and a door separated our rooms. You had to walk up the stairs and through my room around a corner. Oh, and it's the his. only way to get to his room. So, really, we were still in the same uh, We were in the same room. Gotcha. Yeah. Shit. And I, I wrote notes down, but it's... Sorry, I've just never actually... At this point, Miranda was having a little bit difficulty sharing the rest of her story, just like it would be for any other survivor to tell their story for the first time. And I commend her for having so much bravery and courage. I remember the first time I shared my story, realizing that I hadn't told my story verbally before. And so if you're having a hard time coming back to your story or sharing your story and feeling like you're drawing a blank, it's completely normal. And I just want to remind you to be patient with yourself. Miranda is such a strong person and she was so determined and she continued. Um, the first couple of nights that we were down there, nothing really, nothing happened. And then uh, we were there probably, I was probably there, I don't know, probably about a week or so. And I've always been a light sleeper. And he, I, I was always been scared of the dark. Well, I was a light sleeper. He uh, came into my room and crawled in my bed with me, got behind me. And 
told me not not to scream and then started started touching me and I can remember telling him no and asking him what he was doing because I was confused and he like you don't want to wake our parents do you and naturally yeah yeah I kind of I kind of (laughs) do but I also knew in the back of my mind that I would lose my mom if I'd done anything to ruin this and I wanted that I wanted her to love me and want me and he kept telling me you can't tell you can't tell and told me it was a game that we were gonna play a game it was always a game no matter what it was which he just violated me with his hands at this point nothing else yet (sighs) pretty much almost every night from June to November he would rape me and I would let it happen because I was scared. What kind of kid is scared and let someone do that because they don't want to lose their mom? So they're just now finally having a connection with and that bond with. Who does you that? You were just a kid, Miranda. You wanted so desperately to have your mom, to have a mom. Your dad wasn't around, and at that age, it's the most logical thing. It's a, it's, it's a logical thing for, for a child in their mind. You, you didn't know. I'm so sorry, Miranda. I've never admitted that part out loud. As I was always scared of admitting that I let it happen, and people would tell me that, well, you, then you didn't get raped. You didn't, nothing happened to you. You no. wanted it. No, I didn't. You were more afraid of what would have happened if you had shared it. And it's, it's a terrifying thing to share, especially as a child. It got worse when that summer, um, he had a, he had a brother named Jimmy. He was, uh, he was 11. We got along like true brother and sister would get along. We would fight one day and mm-hmm. be buddies the next. He never done anything. He didn't act nothing like WD. My cousin Aaron had flew in from Arizona and stayed the summer with us. And he didn't get along with WD for some reason. But me and Aaron were super close. I think they beat each other up like four times that summer. So... They had to split everybody up, and Jimmy and Aaron had to share what was WD's room, and they put oh, WD with God. me. And it was almost like he had this, this, like I was his possession, almost. Because, like, we, we had some neighborhood kids that were, like, um, which they were all boys except for, like, two little five-year-old girls, and I'm between the ages of eight and nine, and everybody else is, like, 10, 11, 12, 13. I think Aaron was like 14 at the time, maybe. Um, so like I got really close with the the other two neighborhood boys that were one was my age and then the other one was uh two years older than me. And every time I'd hang out with them, because I would try to hang out with them and like get away from the BD and everything, you know. And he would he would get mad. Like he would just I look back now and I, I I can remember little, I guess now it would be considered like jealousy things, you know, as you get older, you realize people get jealous. Um, 
little things he would do to like cause friction, especially between me and this um the the kid that was two years older than me. We uh, I guess he would be like my first like crush, or whatever. You know, he was like my uh, I consider him my first mm-hmm. my first kiss. You know, like I wanted that. You know, I wanted to kiss him, not be forced. Um, WD would just I don't know. He it was. If he was upstairs playing the the Nintendo, he would constantly be like, "Miranda, come up here! Miranda, come up here! I I need your help with something. I need this and like make me sit down like next to him and watch him play this stupid Super Mario game." And there was some nights, there was some nights our like my mom and his dad would be up downstairs and he'd have me come in his room and do stuff to me while they were up. I mean. That was always his favorite game. That's what he, that, it was a game. It was like playing house is what he called it. And this was after the summer ended and everybody went home. And I don't know how much, like, if, how detailed you want me to be about, like, you certain things. You can be things. as detailed as you want. You can be as less detailed as you, it's, it's, it's completely up to you. This is, this is your story. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I guess I don't know, like, the appropriate words mm-hmm. to say. <laughs> Um, he would call it playing house and he'd, uh, he'd tell me I was his and that I will always be his and that he loved me and that I should want to make him happy and please him. And that's when he would make us get on his bed and I would, uh, I would have to kiss him and then go down. And that's when I learned what a hand job and a blowjob really were mm-hmm. um and as he was doing it he would tell me he would call me a whore and I was his little whore and this and that and I didn't know I don't know what those words were I didn't know what that meant and he's like this is what adults do this is we're, this is what we're gonna do we're we're gonna be together and I'm thinking my mom's supposed to marry your dad you're my stepbrother and he never, never had a girlfriend. Didn't want a girlfriend. Did at any point stop? When things advanced more into uh, his penis, going into mm-hmm. everything down there, that got more frequent. Um, probably like around so September. So this was over the course of an entire year. This was, a course, of six months. Let's see, June, July, August, September, October, November. It must have yeah, felt like months. forever with how often it happened. I dreaded going to sleep because that, when that would happen, he'd always come into my room and always get behind me. And the nights that I really would try to quietly put up a fight, he would literally get on top of me and pin me down. And I mean, he he violated me so bad when all when when those nights would happen, he raped me in my vagina oh. and my butt. I mean, and not just once. And he got to doing it so frequently that um, there was one day, right about a week. Before my before uh, it, everything blew up, um, that 
I had went in to use the bathroom and I had uh, completely soaked a pair of my underwear in blood. I was bleeding from down there. I didn't. I I didn't say nothing. I didn't know what to do. I just kind of like what what the hell. And I took them off and I thought I hid them, like wrapped them up, hid them good enough in like the trash can, you know, in the bathroom, so my mom wouldn't see. But the next day she came and got me and was like. We need to have a talk, Miranda. You, you're, you, I just thought I hit puberty. Okay. Like I was, mm-hmm. you know, I was having a period. So I got to hear that whole talk. Right. Well, I'd only bled that one day. There was only blood that one day. So my mom had this big talk and was like, show me how to do this. And then like, I had to do it every day or whatever. Which I didn't say nothing to her, you know. At this point, eight-year-old Miranda still didn't have enough courage to come forward with the abuse. She was afraid of losing the opportunity of finally having her mom involved in her life after years of neglect. And then she talks about the jarring experience of how her mom discovered Miranda's abuse. Well, a couple of days later, after school, I, I had went down to hang out with one of the other kids in the neighborhood all day long. And I was, I usually came home, you know, like if uh, I wasn't staying at their house for dinner, if they were getting ready to have dinner or it was getting dark, I had to go home. I mean, I lived maybe a block down the road, maybe a block. And it was in the middle of nowhere. So, and I went, I was, came in the front door. And when I walked in, it looked like uh, somebody either robbed the house or a tornado went through the house. Like, the couch was halfway out in the living room. There were dishes broke all over the floor. And my mom's standing up. And William and WD are sitting at the table. And my mom's, like, crying and raging. And WD just looks at me, goes to get up. My mom's like, Miranda, get the fuck out of this house and go down the road. Like, like forced me, told me. Like, this WD was coming after me. And she told me to leave. And I had to run down. I had to run and did not leave that got the other kid's house until she come down there. And I, I truly was confused. I didn't know what was going on. It was probably about 10 o'clock. Cause when I got, when I got back down there, he was actually coming outside and I had scared him and I was crying and he brought me in and his mom's like, why are you doing back here? And I was like, I don't know. My mom just, my, I was like, something's going on. The house is destroyed. My mom told me to come down here. I don't know. And they let me stay down there, obviously. But um, it was probably about 10 o'clock at night when my mom came down there. And uh, she told me to get in the truck. She talked to his parents, but I, I couldn't make out what they were saying. And, like, I really liked this kid. Like, it was, you know, we, we really liked each other. And it was actually the last time I ever saw him. It was the last time I'd ever, I was ever in Frankfurt and uh I didn't know that at the time and she gets in the truck and she's like I know what happened and I uh I don't deal with confrontation very well anyways never have no matter who it is and at this point in my mom and mom's relationship I'd always cower and start crying because she has came at me before you know and uh I was like I don't know what you're talking about and she's like I know I know what he did I know what he did to you I know what you let him do 
Um, and uh, she goes, you're going to the police. I'm taking you to the police station. And I was like, no, please don't. I, 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 didn't, I didn't want mm-hmm. to. So this is the part where Miranda talks about her shaking experience of being interviewed at the police station and later being examined by a sexual assault examiner. The laws of how to protect underage victims of sexual assault or rape are different in every state and are not always the best for the victim. States that have stronger protections understand the process of being examined can be just as traumatizing or more traumatizing than the assault itself. This was especially true for Miranda 20 years ago when her mom brought her to the police station to be examined and interviewed. I didn't want to report it. I didn't. Because I, I, I just, I seen the look on her face and in her eyes and it was, it was hatred. And it wasn't towards them, it was towards me. And she made me go to this police station down there. And uh, I don't know if it's done different now. But I know 20 years ago, I had to tell two middle-aged, probably six foot two, 200 pound fucking officers that I was raped. And I don't know, this probably sounds weird, but that was actually probably more traumatizing than the actual rape at the time. Because uh, when they would ask, they asked me what happened and I told them and they'd be like, well, what exactly did he do? Did he make you do this? Did he make you do that? Did you like it? You, it was like I was reading a story in some porno magazine. Oh God. They asked you like that's how detailed they wanted it and i sat there for two hours and when i would say i don't know they're like well are you sure or did, was it this it wanted me to recollect how many times i did each thing i did i was the one who was doing it and my mom's just sitting there just staring at me so then they made uh they made obviously i had to have some kind of examination right mm-hmm. and uh that night and you would think you got a nine-year-old little girl in here who's claiming she was raped repeatedly. You would get a woman, right? No, they want to get an old man to examine me. Oh, God. Fully naked on that table. They had done this so completely wrong and irresponsibly. Yeah. The, the, the examiner, I don't know what you would call him, but the examiner person um, said it had looked like some trauma had happened down there but he hadn't fully i hadn't fully lost my virginity all the way what does that even mean oh my god not only did they completely screw up how they interviewed you but they've they had men do it the entire time and did he did they tell you that verbatim that you yeah oh my god yeah which mean I didn't know what that meant, but my mom just looked at me, so that just made it even worse. Like I, like it wasn't true. Like it was just all made up at that point. When how else would I know what half the shit was? You wouldn't have. And at this point, you were still eight, right? I was you nine. Were- I had turned nine at the end of July. So you were nine. There was at, at that age, you almost believe everything that adults tell you. It's it's hard to make sense of anything like that. 
And then uh, after that, we drove all the way about an hour and a half, two hours back up to northern Kentucky and uh, was beaten on my aunt's door at two o'clock in the morning. And my mom had to tell my family what happened. And my grandfather, bless his heart, his soul. He, I mean, he was like um, he was 78 when he passed 73 when he passed away. I was 11. So he was set. He was 71 years old. Um was pretty much at this point already um, slowly dying, and uh, he was getting ready to go down to Frankfurt and kill, kill, kill him. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandma just act like it, it never happened. Like it was, uh, it was to never be spoken of. No one in the county should ever know because it would, uh, it would tarnish their reputation. Which my mom had already done that by her alcoholicness and uh, her her choices Franklin County went ahead and set a court date to charge him with rape in Dece- the court date was in December because I uh I had left school I had left probably middle of November my mom unenrolled me out of school there I actually did not enroll back into school until January but uh it was it was in December when there was a court date and it was a trial court date. Like I had to, I was going to have to sit in front of all kinds of people and tell this all over again. And not only that, but he would be sitting right there staring at me. And my mom had already constantly every day remind me how awful I am and that I deserved it. And I made it all up. Oh, my God. So come that day, I didn't go. I didn't go. I never went to that court date. I never told anybody. And he got to walk away free like he didn't do nothing. And, like, nothing ever happened. And it's my fault. Because I didn't go. Because I couldn't do it. I wasn't I wasn't brave enough to do it. To stand in front of however many people... And I have to repeat all of that in detail again. At this point, I wanted to interrupt Miranda. She was expressing frustration for not showing up to the court date. But what she did was an act of self-preservation and protection when she, as a victim, was not respected or properly cared for during the process of the police interview and sexual assault examination. Her mom wasn't even emotionally or mentally supportive during the time. So for most of this interview, I've removed most of my personal audio for poor quality, but I thought that it was important to include this part. Hopefully you can hear it. Here it is. I, I hate, I hate to interrupt you. You're fine. But I have to, I have to completely disagree with you in that it was most definitely not your fault for not going to that court date. It was, in fact, the fault of the adults who were taking care of you at that time. It was your mom's fault for not supporting you and not encouraging you. It was your mom's fault for not believing you. And it's your mom's fault for not trusting in you. So much so to the point that you even thought that you yourself were not trustworthy to be brave enough to share your story. It was not your fault 
for not sharing your story when you were not ready. And I, it just sounds like the court system was not up to date at that point. I think they have definitely changed things, possibly way after. But like everything, everything about what had happened to you, about how your case was handled, was so poorly done. And it's, it's so terrible to hear that your mom wasn't able to be that strength for you as a nine-year-old. You know, barely knew yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, not even sexually. And yet you're, you're faced with, from time to time, just the people that you trust, the person that you trust telling you that it was your fault and that you had made it up. It's just, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. You were, you were nine years old. I've never had anybody really believe me. You know, there's a stigma and the couple people that I would just generally or briefly say, you know, I've been raped. I know what that's like. They would just look at me and it was always like, you're just making it up. I always got that. I've always gotten that. I've, I've lied about it or I'm making it up or I want attention. No, I don't. I've never wanted any kind of someone to feel sorry for me or something like that. You know, like, I understand there are I I understand there are people that do make it up, and that's what's given the stigma of it. But there's more people that have been through rape than not, and when people can't believe you or refuse to believe you, it's hard. It's truly hard, and I see why a lot of people don't come forward with it over the years. You know, yeah, but it's got to stop. You know, my story may not be similar to other people's stories. You know, they may not have, you know, the feelings or the things that I did in my in my situation. But I'm sure there's people out there that have a similar type of story as mine. And they need to know it's okay. That it's okay you did those things the way you did them. You, you let that situation go the way it did because of your your reasons like I do because I wanted my mom's affection and her love mm-hmm. you know like that's okay and for you to say that you're the first person to ever say that that it was okay and that I wasn't in the wrong mm-hmm. you did what you could at the time you did what you could with what you had and at nine years old that was the best decision that you felt you could make and no one can blame you for it being your fault at nine years old Especially since you had no one to turn to at the time. You know, like at that age, we're just, we're so thirsty for love and affection and for someone that we can trust. And you didn't have any of those things. It takes a ton of courage to share a story like Miranda's. There are so many layers to surviving with sexual abuse that make it so hard to share with others. When you finally get the chance to share your story in a safe place, it can be liberating and healing. If you feel like you're ready to share your truth, resources like RAIN suggest sharing with a trained and trusted therapist, counselor, or sexual assault survivor group. Unfortunately for Miranda, her early experiences with therapy did not work out, and Miranda faced the darkness of her own experience in isolation while her mom refused to support her mentally or emotionally. It gets worse from there, too. They made me go to therapy. 
um, I think I went twice because even the therapist wanted details and constantly asked me, how does that make you feel? And I, I, I thought I stopped. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do therapy. I couldn't do it. And then, uh, about a year later, it, uh, I tried to talk to my mom about it because I could, I couldn't handle mm-hmm. it. I wasn't handling it very well. I mean, I had already, I, I tried to kill myself at this point. You know, I'm 10 years old, almost 11, you know? Who thinks about suicide? Who tries to kill themselves? She looked me in my face and told me to shut the fuck up. And I can either go back to therapy or I can get the fuck over it. Because she didn't want to hear about it. She didn't want to talk to me about it. She didn't care. I ruined her life and I took her happiness away. And she wished she never had me. And I never I never talked about it again. And I never thought about it after that. I put it subconsciously away. I think... Mm-hmm. Because it was the only thing I had to do. I didn't have no other options at that point. And I've tried to kill myself over the years about four times. And each time my mom tells me she's going to stick me in a mental institution because that's where I belong. And then um, she come out a couple years ago and told me that uh, she got her and William got back in contact. And uh, right about a couple months after it happened and. uh she was trying to get back together with him and take me back down there. Oh, my God. And that uh, they were just going to put WD in therapy for his uh, sexual problems. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, they weren't even going to send him away to live with his mom. No, they were just going to let him go to therapy every day to talk about his, uh, his over-sexual activities, I guess. Um, but that didn't happen because William, uh, William didn't want her. So that resulted in, uh, it being my fault too, even though his son got to walk free and has no, not even a sealed, uh, record from being a minor of rape charges. There's nothing on him. If you were to look in his file, it would be squeaky clean of rape at least. Because he was under the age of 18. And I didn't go to that court date. Oh God. Which I can't even find any kind of records of that court date. I can't find nothing. I've looked off and on over the years. I can't find the police record or nothing that I, I mean, I can't find nothing. Because I, like, at this point in my life now, I feel like I need that closure. Like, I need, I need to remember the parts that I don't remember because I know there is, I know there's things that, I can tell you vaguely that he did to me, but some of this stuff was so bad that I've blocked it out. And that's a, that's a normal response to trauma. I don't know if that, if that's normal to want to try to remember. It is. Mm -hmm. And, but I can't find nothing. It's like, it never even happened. Don't even exist. Your mind protected itself in the best way it could. And oftentimes when something so terrible happens to us, we can almost shut out from that experience. We detach it. And then it's really hard to remember that memory. Um, but I can, I can definitely say from personal experience that it's normal to want to remember because it's, it's something that had happened to you. It's, it's your memory. It was your experience and you wanting to make sense of what had happened is it makes complete sense because it was a very confusing time. And as an adult now, um, 
it's different. You know, it is. It is different now that I actually can. I found a support system, at least within you, that I don't feel. I don't feel judged. I feel like I can talk about it, and it's okay. And more people need that. Oh, for sure. Especially with like I see all this stuff in the news now. And that's kind of what really brought on the whole. Because I've been thinking about coming out about it for a while. I just didn't know how. And uh, seeing all that stuff in the news about, you know, all this human trafficking, child trafficking and things like that. And it's like, I, I, I can relate. After Miranda shared her story of her child sexual abuse in the aftermath, I wanted to know what she would tell Miranda at eight years old if she could go back in time. If, if you had the opportunity to talk to your nine-year-old self as a 29-year-old, 20 years after the fact, uh, what would you tell? What would you tell Miranda? That it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth letting, letting it happen because no, it don't matter. She, you're, my mom never loved me. She never, it was never there and it was never going to be that. She was never going to be that mother and that I should have told the very first day it happened because it would have still been the same I was still went through the same thing that I went through six months later, but I wouldn't have had six months of trauma to deal with, of being violated and abused and made to feel like it really was all my fault and that maybe I wouldn't have went down the road that I did. I wouldn't have... Um, constantly been, I wouldn't have been diagnosed with chronic depression and anxiety, and I probably wouldn't have tried to kill myself four times or gotten to drugs that no matter what, your mom is never going to be your mom. That's what I would have told my nine-year-old self. I wish I had the right words when I was speaking with Miranda when she mentioned this. As survivors of child sexual abuse, and I'm including myself in here, we definitely have a tendency to be hard on the vulnerable child that we once were. The Courage to Heal by Laura Bass and Laura Davies says that healing from sexual abuse requires that we find compassion for the vulnerable child inside each of us who was hurt, betrayed, and abandoned. If you also still blame your younger self for what you were able or not able to do at the time, Try to flip it around and cut yourself some slack. Give your younger self credit for doing what they could to to protect you in the best way that they knew how at the time. Miranda also mentioned something important here. She says that she would tell her nine-year-old self to let go of the hope of having a loving and present mom and to look out for herself instead. And so while this concept is much harder um, for a child to grasp or even an adolescent, being able to love and care for ourselves in the way that our parents or caregivers couldn't can be very freeing. Um, eventually, we hope to find love and support in healthier and better places. What are some things that you've learned about yourself and your experience now that you're uncovering all of that now? That I, I, know, I know how to be a good mom because I never had one. And that's the best thing in my life. My, having my boys is the best thing that could have ever happened to me. 
which I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I was clean and sober years before I had my kids. You know, I, I, I once I came back home after 2012, I, I didn't drink. I didn't drugs. I ain't done nothing in eight years. I am truly a good person. I am so kind hearted. And I, 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 I probably love people more than I should or care more than I should because I never had that. So I tried to give it to other people. You know, I try to love and care about everybody. And my kids have so much more than I never had. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I'm there for them. I have, I obviously have to work though, but um, I've never missed a holiday. I've never missed a birthday. I never missed their first words. I've never missed their first steps. I've always been there when they wake up and when they go to bed. I don't leave for days on end without seeing them. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I work and I've actually I actually finally found a not a not even just a job, but an actual career now. And not working some dead end job like my mom did just so she could pay for her alcohol that week. I don't let people watch my kids. I don't just let strangers have them. Like my mom used to let all her boyfriends watch me. Mm-hmm. I know what to do and what not to do. I know how to be a good person and how not to be a good person. And I've realized that suicide is not the way to go either. That I, I make my life and I make who I am. And that I need, I don't need to let people control me and tell me who I am and what mm-hmm. kind of person I am. I don't want to be scared. I don't want to have to worry about if this is going to happen to me again. I've had trust issues my whole life. After being abused as a child, it's usually difficult to understand the concept of what love should look like, especially without a support system. And so I wanted to know a little bit more about who taught her the most about love growing up, because oftentimes that's how we learn how to love and care for ourselves as adults. Um, I had my, my grandma and my grandfather, they, uh, I had them. And then, um, my, my aunt Rosalie and my uncle Gary, which my uncle Gary's actually passed away now too. They were the main people that I had to look upon for what a relationship really is, what love really is, which my uncle Gary, my uncle Gary and my grandfather and, uh, my grandma right up until the last couple of years, she was alive. Um, my grandma took care of me real well. I I rest my grandmother's soul because she she's a she's a great person. Okay, um, mm-hmm. I do feel a lot of her love wasn't real love. It was out of pity and obligation because she would just shower it. She if I needed money or I wanted money, she just handed it to me. My aunt Rosalie, my uncle Gary. Um, my uncle Gary, I mean, he was an alcoholic too. So, but they they were together up until the day he died, and they were together. They got together when they were uh, they were teenagers. He enlisted in the Marines just so he could marry my aunt. And when I lived with them, is what taught me that this is what it looks like. Because like he would be at the bar every night, but my aunt. My aunt never worried because mm-hmm. she knew 
that she loved him and he loved her. And he, you know, he, even though he'd come in drunk, he would still be, he still would, I love you and take care of her, you know, and he took care of me. There was a lot of nights that he would take care of me. They owned their own business. When I was younger, that's who really taught me about love and showed me love really mm-hmm. the most. My grandmother really actually never showed me love. When I lived with my when I lived with my grandparents, my grandfather took care of me. He he didn't work. My grandmother worked at the IRS up until yeah, up until about a year before he passed away. So when I lived there, my grandfather took care of me a lot. He would always tell me, you know, I was I was a good kid and I was I was nothing like my mom. I was never going to be nothing like my mom. That's what your grandpa told you? Yeah. That I was I was good and that I had a kind heart. I think I had a general ideal because of my mm-hmm. aunt and my my grandparents, but I didn't have it wasn't like embedded in me that that is what you should have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew and I, I knew generally, but it wasn't it wasn't normal for me to have what like my grandparents and my aunt had. And uh, it was never normal for me. When Miranda talks about how she's learned about love, she shares a lot about the unstable life that she had with her mom. She had a family who would do their best to care for her when her mom wasn't around. And every day was so inconsistent that she became used to unpredictability. This is important because her mom was a huge part in Miranda's life. The hardship she had with her mom was an entire thing on its own. And it's something that made growing up with an experience of sexual abuse that much more challenging. I I mean, by the time I was, by the time we moved to Frankfurt, my mom had done been with 10 guys that I can remember. And some of them were just like one night stands that she would take me around just so she could go there that night because my family wouldn't watch me and she'd be pissed off. And me, I thought it was normal that your mom was never home on the weekends because my mom would literally, I would never see her after Thursday night till Monday morning when we lived with my, when we lived with my Aunt Roseanne, she only, my mom only took care of me then Monday through Thursday. And that was only at night because my aunt worked nights. And that's if she wasn't able to pawn me off on my other aunt or my grandparents. My Aunt Roseanne would, when she would get in in the mornings, she would get in in time to wake me up, get me breakfast dress me or pick out my clothes, whatever. I was in elementary school, take me to school, physically walk me into the school. And she would be up in the afternoon time to pick me up before she went to work that night. Wow. And then she'd have to take care of me full time on the weekends when my mom was out partying. Did she ever talk about your mom in any way or not when I was younger? No, which, Mm -hmm. My my aunts and my mom are 12 years apart anyways. My mom's the baby. My mom and my Aunt Roseanne never really ever got along anyways. Um, I do know one night, I do remember one night in particular that, which my mom, my mom's always kind of been a short, heavier person. And my aunt's kind of tall and super skinny. Looking back now, knowing what I know about like drugs and stuff. This is probably actually one of the worst nights. This was before my mom ever even moved me to Frankfurt. She had been acting real strange that night. My aunt was at work and I would either sleep like in the living room or in my aunt's bed. I had my own room, 
with everything in it. I just didn't like to sleep all the way in the back of the trailer because I was scared of the dark and stuff. And uh, I was laying down on the floor trying to go to sleep because I had to be up for school, you know, like during the week. And my mom is just, I'd never seen her acting like the way she was that night. And I remember asking her, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Why are you? She was all jittery, wouldn't stop talking and not mm-hmm. making any sense about shit. And every time I'd lay down, she'd be like waking me up and stuff. And her mood would in an instant go from happy to sad to angry to complete psycho when my aunt walked in the door at this moment at like three o'clock in the morning. My mom specifically told me that she just she had too much coffee to drink. She drank too much coffee. And something happened, I don't know, but it like flipped a switch in her brain from being crazy laughing about something I didn't understand to yelling at me and telling me she was going to kill me and came at me with a knife and I ran into my aunt's bathroom and locked the door. And about an hour later, I finally opened it. And when I did, I came out and I was in the living room and my mom had her hand up getting ready to smack me. And I'm like cowering, crying. And my aunt had actually walked in the door. And this is the first time I'd ever seen my aunt mad and swung at my mom. And when I say my aunt's skinny, she's a size zero. My mom was like 200 pounds and knocked her out on the ground and asked me what the fuck, asked her what the fuck she was doing and took me to my grandma's that night. How how old were you when that happened? I was seven when that happened. And knowing what I know now, not only about drugs, but about my mom, she not only had an alcohol problem, but she had a problem with, um, she had, not with not with pain pills, but with um, like Valiums and stuff. She had a problem with those. She never had a prescription. She'd always get them illegally. And she had took one too many that night and uh, went, I, I don't even, Went a little crazy, I guess you would say. I mean, I'm, I was four years old when I lived with my mom, I think for the first time without living with family. And uh, it's pretty sad when you can recollect the fact that uh, at four years old, you can remember your mom being passed out on the couch in the middle of the day from being too drunk. And uh, you having to go into the kitchen and feed yourself and get your own drinks at four years old. At four years old. And not just for a few hours. There were times that she'd be passed out for a whole day into a whole night. I've seen her. Uh, I've seen her beat people up when she'd be drunk. Um, she would leave me with her boyfriend at the time that was there to watch me while she worked. And the only time that she ever had me at this point in my life was when um, she'd be fighting with my aunts or my grandparents because they didn't, uh, they felt like I shouldn't be with her and tried to take me from her. So she would run and move me to wherever I've lived in. By the time I was five, five different places. That's almost like a new place for every year that you were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. New guy, different guy every time. Sometimes even two different guys in the same year. She would let them like literally take care of me. Like I remember when I was four at this time when she was always passed out and stuff. Um, when she was at work, she would work night shift. Well, not night shift, but she'd get off at like nine or ten o'clock at night. And I was in preschool, so 
obviously I had to have a bath and stuff like that. She would let her boyfriend bathe me and stuff. Or whichever guy was there that night, I guess. And I remember this. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Because there were so many different people in your life that she had introduced you to. Um, did you ever feel like you had at some point gotten used to it? Yeah. Or Honestly, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I, can, I can remember being about seven or eight right before we moved to Frankfurt. And I could... I could predict at this point how long that guy would be around and wow. how uh, she had, she, she had a she Well, at this point she ain't with nobody, but she used to have a pattern and literally the longest, I can't say the longest. Cause uh, when I was, there's a whole different side of that up until I was 17 the longest person she'd ever been with was three years. No more than that, ever. By now, it's pretty obvious that Miranda has lived with a very dark history of recurrent child sexual abuse, but she's also lived with a trauma of living with a mom that struggled with addiction. I wanted to know a little bit more about what healing started to look like for her later on in life, and she shared a terrible situation that threatened her ability to be with her children. This is what ultimately helped her to realize that she needed to let go of her mom. You grew up with a lot I did. Um, of things that had happened to you. It wasn't just the sexual trauma that had happened to you. It's everything that had happened between you and your mom and growing up with that experience. How... How have you begun to find healing at this point? When have you started healing? What ha- what does that what does that path look like for you right now? Um, my mom's done some horrible shit to me my whole life, <laughs> and I've always forgave her and tried and, and always gave her another chance. You know, that's my mom. I will I, I tell people all the time my mom's a bitch because she is, which she's been she's actually been sober from alcohol and everything for, um, see, I was probably 12 or 13 when she completely sobered up, mm-hmm. but I'm sobering up from alcohol and drugs didn't change her. It didn't change the fact that she had, she, she has an addictive problem to things. It just changed her addiction to men even worse than before and treating me like I was the worst person in the world. But, um, even when somebody would talk bad about her, I'd, I'd stand up for every man she was with after I was kind of a teenager that would beat on her and stuff. I would get in the middle of like I, I fought grown men for her. And uh, about two years ago, I had to live with her because of some issues with my ex, my kids' mm-hmm. father. And she she decided to I call it an episode. She was having an episode to where everything in her mind that she thought was going on or she heard or seen or people told her was real. What she believed was it and nothing else. And uh, I think she felt like she needed to uh, have a second chance at trying to be a mom. And not to me, to my oldest son. Hmm. Because the issues with my ex made it to where um, I had my oldest son at this point, but my aunt's because my my once my grandmother died, my two aunts lived in her house together, right? They um they had my youngest son because I didn't want him exposed to my mom and her mental abuse. 
it was what needed to be done at that moment that I felt was right in my kids' aspect. I mean, it was hard on me, don't get me wrong, because I hardly ever seen him, but, um, and not because my aunt kept me from him. My mom went around and told everybody that I was a piece of shit and that I chose a meth head over my children and that I done drugs, which my mom never knew. I even done drugs. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I didn't do them. And called CPS on me while I lived with her and told them that I uh, I had a, a substance abuse problem. I was doing illegal activities and I was a violent person. Wow. And her having the influences that she has and the connections she has in the county that we're from got my case pushed to over the limit of days that uh, a CPS investigation is supposed to go on because they couldn't prove anything. They initially came out to the house when I was at work, so they couldn't even interview me there like because like, you're actually supposed to be there mm-hmm. and gave my mom temporary and uh, I even temporary guard. They gave my mom supervision over my kids while I wasn't there. Like they took her claim and talk to me over the phone while I was at work at eight o'clock at night. So I couldn't be alone with my kids. And not only and not only that, but she threw my youngest kid in there who didn't even live in her household. He was with my aunts. So I was not allowed to be unsupervised with either one of my kids. Oh my gosh. Because they she claims that I left him alone while I walked down the road. I am two hundred and something pounds. My mom lives in the middle of nowhere on a hilly road. I don't exercise. I don't like being outside. Why would I walk down the road, let alone leave my kid unattended? Like, if you just look at me, you're going to know that was a lie. And mm-hmm. carrying a basket, a white basket. And the, and the caseworker believed her because a witness has seen me. And uh, I found out a couple weeks into it. That uh, her the witness was a girl that she worked with that lived uh, down the road that was a friend of hers. Wow. Who initially supposedly uh, made this claim. So she successfully framed you for yeah. neglecting your children. Yeah. And, and the caseworker determined that I had a, a substance abuse problem, illegal activities, and um, domestic violence. Because they, I, they ask you, um, have you been in any domestic violence situations? No, I physically have not been in a domestic violence situation. My mom has a record of domestic violence, not me. Mm-hmm. And the caseworker put it on me. And I don't know about other, anywhere else, but I know in Kentucky, it's 45 to 60 days. And that's seven days a week is what it's supposed to be. Not one time did I have to drug test. Not one time did they come back out to that house. And it went on for over 90 days to the point where I had to call this office. I even walked into this office like four times demanding to talk to somebody because, I mean... You got this paper on me where I can't be un- I can't be unsupervised with my kids. My mom's going around telling everybody that she has temporary custody of my kids when you got to go to court for that. My reputation was completely shut. I couldn't even go into the store without being asked if I could get drugs. And I live in I'm, I'm from a small town. That was the point when uh, I forgave my mom for uh, for what happened in Frankfurt. I forgave my mom for kicking me out of my house or kicking me out of the house at 21. But at that moment when that happened, that was the worst thing 
a mother could ever do to you. And that was the point where I, uh, I was done. I could never, I could never forgive her there. There. I love my mom. Don't get me wrong because she is my mom, but, uh, there is no more chances. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing. I will be there if she needs me because I'm the only child she has. But, uh, I have accepted the fact that I don't really have a mom and I'm okay with that. It took me two years to get to that point, but I, I am truly in my heart. I'm okay with that. Cause once you go to that point where you call CPS and try to get your own kids, kids taken away because you think it, that you're shot at redemption. <laughs> I'm still alive. I may be a grown up, but I'm still alive and I'm still your child. Mm-hmm. You could have a redemption with me, not try to take my toddler. My son, actually, my oldest son stopped talking when I had moved in with her. He was two. And he actually literally, because I had to leave him with her for three days to go clean out my apartment. And when I came back, he wouldn't talk. He wouldn't talk at all. He didn't say a word for almost a year. Not a single word. And now he has to, um, I've had to get him tested at hospitals and stuff. And he has to have speech therapy because now he can't talk. And doctors want to tell me it's, you know, some big fancy word or something wrong. But, uh. I feel like in my heart, it was because in that three days that I left him with my mom, I knew what I knew. I knew what was going to happen. I knew and I shouldn't have done it, but I didn't have a choice. And I feel like the mental abuse had already begun in just three days. I mean, you go from a, a, a two year old actually forming a sentence. What is that clear as day to nothing, not even a syllable for a whole year? Was he able to? see a speech therapist did anything change after that year um it took me i'm i took me well uh when i finally was able to leave my mom's to get back out on my own i got his brother back too which my aunts never took his brother from me i just was not um when i left my mom i was still not financially able or stable to have both so in my heart i knew it was best for his brother to still stay with my aunt until i could get that mm-hmm and um, once I left my mom's after a little bit, he, he was trying to say words, trying to trying to talk when his brother. I got his brother back over a year, about a year ago, over a year ago. It helps. It helped kind of bring that back out. I took him to the doctor. Let's see. It was late, like I don't know, October, November to get um, to figure out what was wrong. I didn't know. And it's been a slow process because it takes like weeks in between appointments and different specialists. And then the COVID hit and that put a halt on everything. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has not actually got to see a speech therapist, but um, I've actually been off of work for two months. I just started back. And in the two months that I was actually able to be home with both of them 24 seven, he can actually talk now. Wow. And he's starting to finally put um, two or three word sentences together again. Mm-hmm. And he's four, but he's never, he's never with my mom. If I go and stay at my mom's, cause sometimes there's, there's like, I've went and stayed the night or like a weekend or something with my mom just to make peace as my, uh, per request of my other the rest of my family. I don't ever leave him alone with her, but he don't really, he don't, that my kids don't really go around my mom a whole lot. I wanted to bring it back to when she mentioned um, about what it was like to finally let go of her mom and what kind of impact that made in her life. This is what she said. I'm going to, I'm going to take it back to when you said that um, there was a point in time when you had decided that you didn't have a mom 
um, when you had decided basically that um, you you wouldn't be relying on her for for any type of mothering of any kind for you how at that point how did how did things change what what changes do you feel like you made um, in your life that were that were uh, groundbreaking for your healing for your for your healing I I I had to get my life together and for once for for the first time in my life when I realized that I knew I would be truly alone and doing it on my own and it felt great it felt mm-hmm. so lifting to not have to carry that burden and that weight of everything my mom's done to me because I knew I was better I was better than her I was gonna be better than her any way I could and I've I probably not succeeded as much as some people should have at 29 years old but uh I feel like now I'm at a point that I honestly thought I would never be at in my life and it's because I I let go I let go of her I let go of of everything and told myself I've been on my own since day one it's time to just be on my own like I have no one and it's truly great I would always seek that 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 acknowledgement, that recognition that I was doing something right. And I would never get it, even if I was. Now, I don't care. I know what I'm doing. And she don't like it. She hates it, actually. I, I own a house. I uh, just started a place that I can actually uh, move up in. Mm-hmm. I, make, I make pretty decent money. And I did it all without her. Those are incredible achievements. If you had the opportunity to, if you met with another survivor that's kind of been I guess, in a similar situation as you, and they came up to you, I guess, looking for advice. Uh, what would you tell that person? That it does get better. It may not be instant, and it may seem like it's not going to happen, but it does. I truly believe when people, like with my mom, you, that everybody's going to hit a point that's their breaking point. And you're going to know when it's, that, when it's your breaking point. It took me 27 years to hit that breaking point. And I, and like, I had a friend who had a mom similar to mine and she done everything like I did, would constantly forgive her, always be there for her. people would tell her, you know, you need to just stop, just do this. And she'd come to me about it. And I'm like, look, people are going to tell you that. I said, but until you know, in your heart and your mind that you hit that point, it's not going to happen. And I think like with people, if, if people have been through rape like I was at a child as at a child's age they're not going to feel like it's going to get better that it's people are are going to judge them and look down upon them that they were kids that are making it up but if it takes you 10 years or it takes you till you're 50 that's fine because there's nothing it don't make you a bad person what happened to you mm-hmm. it don't make you tainted it don't make you flawed it don't make you a bad person The person who did it to you is a bad person. And if it takes you till you're 30 to forgive the person who put you in that situation like my mom did me, then that's fine. Because when you hit that point is when your life is going to get 10 times better and you're going to you're going to get to look at them and not have a care in the world. And they're going to be miserable because you're succeeding and you're happy. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this with me. This is, it, it's an honor to have been able to hear your story. And you've, 
you've come so far and have achieved so much. And your boys are very lucky to have you as a mom. Thank you. This interview was a lot, a lot to unpack. And I am so honored that Miranda asked me to ask to do this with me. Um, it's taken some time to edit and process this. And like I've shared on the Instagram account, Relentless Joanna, editing involves a lot of listening to the same recording about maybe a hundred times over. And I know that every single time that I would listen to Miranda's story, I learned something new and I'm sure that you did too. Every survivor's story is so unique and so important, and yet there are parts of it that we share together. Remember, if you are a survivor, you are not alone. You are worth a better tomorrow and a better life. Just like Miranda shared with us before, it can get better and it does get better. And with that, I, I hope you have a peaceful healing and with 2021 just around the corner, a better year for for all of us. I know it's been a long time since I released an episode, Ooh, but I want to let you know that I'm still here even if I don't release episodes as frequently as I used to. I'm currently in grad school, but I have this amazing long winter break and I've been chipping away at content and on the radar, I'm looking to finish episodes for the Survivor's Toolbox, so keep an ear out for that. And just so you know, again, I make detailed timestamps on my website, www.relentlesspodcast.com. Um, there's a bunch of resources that I've collected in there, and I've timestamped every single um, episode that I've ever done. So if you want to leave a comment for this episode, please leave one on the Instagram account. That's Relentless Joanna. Uh, R-E-L-E-N-T-L-E-S-S-J-O-A-N-N-A. And there will be an Instagram post dedicated just for this episode. And if you would like to share your story with us, please let us know through a private message in Instagram. It's always great to be here with you and I'll catch you again next time. <laughs>